You are listening to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us, which means if you've never been to church, walked away from the church, or are struggling to find a church to connect with, you belong here. There are a lot of exciting things going on at Collective as the new year begins, so make sure you are following us on social media at My Collective Church to stay in the loop. Now here's Sunday's message. I know it's Super Bowl Sunday, but my heart's on baseball right now. I know. Uh, to be honest, my heart was on baseball when the commanders were like, Sam Howell's the future. And I was like, ah, pitchers and catchers report in February. So we're just going to keep going uh, baseball. Hey, to kick things off this morning, we have a little bit of housekeeping that I got to work through. Um, and I want to start with a 35-day challenge. Uh, congratulations to those of you who made it out alive. You did all 35 days. Make sure after service you had the next steps in the lobby. Get your tumbler. Uh, if you use the app, just show what came up on the app. If you went the non-app route, hopefully you have like proof of that. Uh, if you decided like you were just going to keep track of it in your head for 35 days, you're a liar and you didn't do it. But we're not going to push you on it. You can go up and lie to them and get your tumbler if you want. Now, for those of you who completed it and you're wondering, okay, what do I do now? You keep going. Okay, um, they have found that it takes 66 days to actually create a habit. And so the challenge right now is for you to keep reading your Bible, right? Keep moving, keep praying, keep serving, keep sacrificing. Like, don't let this be 35 days out of 366. Let this be something that you carry through for the rest of the year. Now, for those of you who are still in it, you started late, you failed once, you picked it back up, uh, keep grinding, okay? Don't allow today's end date for some people to be the day that you give up a second time. Like, keep going after it. Uh, keep working on your heart, soul, mind, and strength. No matter when you complete this, I promise you, if you do all 35 days, you will not regret the time that it took for you to do this. And then when you're done, you go up and you grab your tumbler. Second thing, last Sunday, I brought a really big challenge forward to this church. And so I want to give a shout out to the 75 people who went to Team and Tacos or checked the box to join the team last week. Um, uh, that, that's 75 people who made a choice over the last seven days to uh, dig a ditch to create space for other people to experience Jesus. It's 75 people who made a decision to join in what God is doing in this church. It's 75 people who decided they wanted to serve others in the same way that Christ has served us. Now, if you missed last Sunday or you've been wrestling with it for a week, you know, always check that join a team box or have a conversation with somebody at Next Steps. You know, we're always looking for people to be a part of what God is doing uh, in this community. And what's even cooler is I, I don't know what's going to happen next for Collective, but like I shared last week, as the team grows, uh, our impact grows. And so we know that great things are about to happen. I'm excited, a little bit nervous uh, for what they're going to be. And it comes because people are stepping up and being a part of what we're doing here in this church. All right, two more quick things. This summer, we were supposed to go to Israel for a Holy Land tour, but our trip has been canceled because of the war. And, and that's the bad news. I don't know when or if we'll ever get a chance to go back. The good news, though, is that we have the opportunity to pivot. And so instead of going to Israel, we're actually taking a trip to Greece and doing a New Testament tour where we will walk in the footsteps of Paul and the early church. I'm particularly excited about this as a church planter to like step foot in the places where the church started. Uh, I think it's going to be incredible. And the reason why I'm sharing this, some of you didn't even know we were doing this trip this summer uh, because when we did the initial signups, it filled up. But because there's a change in itinerary and change in trip, we are opening it back up for anybody who's interested in going on this trip with us. We also know that the last trip was Israel and Palestine. Some of you work in jobs where you can't go to those places. You can go to this place, I think. I, 
Probably. I don't know. Check with your boss. Not my problem. Um, so we are doing this trip. It is open back up for anybody who's interested. So a quick details. It does cost a little bit over $4,000, but that includes flight, hotels, meals, all that for 10 days. Um, it's essentially all-inclusive, and it includes like access to all the historical sites and all, all that stuff. Because this trip is this summer, the timeline is super tight, like a really tight timeline. And so if you want more information, before you come up and ask me about it in the lobby, open up your Church Center app. If you don't have the Church Center app, download it. Go to Coming Up and click on the New Testament Apostle Paul tour. There's a list of more details. It includes an itinerary, some of the, like, the basics of the places that we're going to see, a little bit more about cost breakdown, all that. At the very bottom, there's a chance for you to sign up. What it does is sends us a form, and then we will respond back by giving you all the details, right? And it's a little bit overwhelming. Um, ultimately, you have a few months to make the decision, pay, and hop on a flight with us and go. And so that's coming up. Um, again, it's on, coming up on the Church Center app, so check that out. Sign up, ask more questions in the sign-up form, all that stuff. All right, last thing. Over the past few weeks, we have been experiencing a lot of tension when it comes to people bringing birth through fifth graders into the auditorium. And this tension has led to us as a staff and the leadership of Collective wrestling with what to do because, uh, and we say this regularly, this isn't the best environment for your birth through fifth graders. And, and there's a few reasons for that. Noise level is one of them. It's fine for you. You're an adult. Your hearing's going anyways. But in kids who are developing hearing, it's not the best place for them. Um, it's not the best place because we talk about real stuff, right? We have hard conversations. We talk about topics. Uh, my guess is you're not ready to have that conversation with your kid yet. Um, and that's why we have a great collective kids space. And specifically, we have a fourth and fifth grade room where they're starting to have these conversations with kids, uh, but one where they can ask questions, right? If I say something in here, your kid doesn't get to ask me, hey, what does that mean? Uh, they have to ask you in the car ride home. So that's your choice if you want that. But the other reason is because as kids are kids, they you know, will start to cry or they'll start to wiggle or um, you know, they'll start talking, and it becomes a distraction for everybody else in this space. Now, at the same time, we understand that it's hard for parents to leave their newborns or upset toddlers in collective kids. And so the policy at Collective has always been that we do not stop parents from bringing their kids into the auditorium. But when they do, we politely tell them that if their child becomes a distraction to those around them, right, not you, they're distracting you the entire time, if we're being honest. So it's not it when it starts making you uncomfortable, it's about other people in this space. When that starts to happen, we start to notice that from the back. We'll tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, do you mind stepping into the lobby? The problem that we've been facing recently is that we've been tapping people on the shoulder and saying, hey, do you mind stepping out? And their response is no. Uh, and I know you all have heard it, you've experienced it, it's made it more uncomfortable in this space. On Christmas Eve, I think it was our last service, uh, at the middle of the sermon, a kid just started yelling. And it was uncomfortable, it was distracting. To be honest, it was really dishonoring to everybody in this room, uh, that they wouldn't step out and take care of their child. What has made it even worse, though, is as we've been doing our best, like, have these conversations and all that, um, these parents have felt embarrassed, they felt insecure, like, all the feelings that come with getting a tap on the shoulder, and they've been going on social media during the week and just trashing us and saying things that are complete. You should read them. They're, they're, to be honest, they throw CT under the bus, so it's okay for me because they're not throwing me under the bus. <laughs> and everybody knows CT is, like, he's the kindest person in the world, and they're like, he's the worst. I'm like, he is. <laughs> that Michael guy's great. But because it's becoming a thing, right, and anytime things become a thing that aren't supposed to be things, we have to do something about it. And so because it's becoming a thing, we're, we're going to make some changes. And so here's what we're going to do. As of right now, uh, we aren't going to fully stop people from bringing their kids into the auditorium. So we're going to keep that going. 
Um, but if you do bring your kids in here, we are asking that you step out the moment they begin to make noise. You can walk around the lobby. There's a feed in there. You can stay engaged in worship. It's a parent care room. We even have the option for young kids. As a parent, you can get background checked and stay in the room with your kid until they're ready to be solo, right? And if we're being honest, it's until you're ready to be solo because they're probably ready, but it's a whole other conversation for another time. What we are asking is that you stop making us tap you on the shoulder, okay? We will do it if we need to, um, but we are asking that you choose, when you choose to bring your child into the auditorium, that you also choose to do the right thing and step out when it's necessary. And if things continue to go the way they're going for the past few months, we will make a change and stop allowing birth through fifth graders in this room, okay? Um, there are more people in this room than ever before. There are more seats, more space, all of that. And so if it becomes a thing, as it is kind of moving in that direction, uh, we'll just stop birth through fifth graders from being able to be in here, and we'll encourage you to be in the lobby, you know, parent care, or honestly, you can just watch at home until you are ready to do this with us. And the reason why is because what's happening here in this space is just too important. Last summer, I got an email from a guy that used to go to Collective, uh, but he moved to Montgomery County, and he sent me this email, and he said his cousin's life was falling apart, and he didn't know what to do or where to go, but he knew, based on his time at Collective, that this was a good place to start. And so he and his cousin showed up, and before service, he pulled me aside, and he told me um, that his cousin had recently crashed his car after a night of drinking. But what happened in the car crash was it actually resulted in the death of his girlfriend. And so he was just a few days away from going to jail for a very long time, and that's why they were here. His cousin said, I don't know how to solve that problem, but I know a place where you could hear about hope, and I know a place where you could hear about grace and endless second chances. And I wish I was making this up. That Sunday, we were in our Game Changers series, and I was talking about how nothing in the dark stays in the dark. And how what we need to do is we need to repent. We need to change the way we're living and thinking we need to step into the light of Jesus. And I was preaching, but while I'm preaching, I, I know where he's sitting, and I'm also praying. And if you do public speaking, you know you can do both, okay? Like while you're preaching, you're also thinking about what's going on. And, and I'm thinking about this guy, and I'm praying that this stuff sinks in because I know that he needs to hear this, right? that this is the last thing he's going to get to hear from us, and he needs to hear it. And I begin to read this verse in Romans 5.8, which says, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. In the middle of reading this verse, a child begins to melt down. And I watch, and I'm just feeling this like ache. And I watch the parents come up, they, they tap the, the mother on the shoulder, they ask her to step in the lobby, and she says no. And the kid just continues. And I watched while preaching as this guy stopped listening and just began staring at this kid. Right? I have no idea what he's feeling. Right? My, my guess is he's looking at this child thinking, I wish that was my future at some point. That, that's my guess. But what I know is in that moment, he stopped listening, and all I felt like was that we lost him. He was de distracted, not listening. He had checked out. And to be honest, the way I feel today still is that we blew it. Shortly after that, kid's still crying, making a noise. He gets up, goes to the lobby, uh, goes to the bathroom, never, never comes back in. And that was in June of last year, and I, and I still, I lose sleep over this all the time. Right? I think about this guy all the time. Because someone who trusts Collective brought someone who's going through the worst moment in, in their life. And the best that we have to offer anybody in this space isn't good seeds or isn't good lights or good worship. The best we have to offer is the gospel. The good news that Jesus lived a perfect life and died on a cross for us. And through him, no matter how sinful or terrible or awful we are, no matter what we have done, when we relinquish control of our lives and put our trust in him, we are made new. And instead of him hearing that, he heard a kid crying because a parent refused to step out 
of the auditorium. And listen, I know uh, that you guys are people who bring your kids into Collective Kids, right? You're not the ones trashing CT on social media on Sunday afternoons. But I wanted to share this with you all because I need you guys to understand that we are doing our best and we are thinking about everybody in this room and if things don't get better, that we'll have to make a change. Now, if you have questions about this, come talk to me. Okay? If you feel tension about this, come talk to me. If you want to quote Jesus, let the little children come to me. Come have that conversation with me. We'll see how that goes, okay? That is not what this means. Your baby is not learning about Jesus in this space while they're screaming. They're not. But, let's, but if you feel any way about this, come have this conversation with me because the most important thing in this space is we get 60 minutes every single Sunday to experience the gospel. Right? It's the reason why we silence our cell phones. It's why you hold on to your tumblers. And it's why we do our best to make sure kids are in the right space for them. Does that sound good? All right, let's do this. All right, so today we're starting a new series called God and Work. And what I want you to do right now is I want you to take a moment. Sorry, introverts, it's going to kill you slowly. But I want you to take a moment to share with the person next to you what your first job was. And if you're a student, you can tell them what you hope your first job will be. Not your career, but like your first job, all right? I'll give you 60 seconds. Ready? All right, go. All right, all right. Um, extrovert, stop telling everybody what the job is like. You ask introverts and they're like, I was a server. You ask extroverts and they're like, let me tell you about my experience. Um, you know, it's funny because you learn, you learn a lot about a person based on what their first job was, right? And it leads to a lot of other questions, a lot of other stories, um, which we're gonna get to over the next few weeks. But to start, I'm, I'm gonna put a number on the screen, 90,000. This is the average amount of hours that we will spend working in our lifetime, 90,000 hours. Put this into perspective. People live on average 622,000 hours, and of course, a huge chunk of that is sleeping. Of the 622,000 hours that we live, we will sleep for 228,000 hours. And what that means is that we have approximately 394,000 hours of being awake. That's it. 394,000 hours to do anything and everything that we want to do in our lifetime. And 90,000 of those are spent working. Let me continue putting this into perspective. The average person spends 3,600 hours laughing in their lifetime. We spend, <laughs> that's good, that's good. Yes, yeah, yeah. On average, we spend 4,300 hours exercising. Uh, we spend 32,000 hours eating. That's good. <laughs> uh, here's a fun one. The average person will have 2,800 hours of sex in their lifetime. So many jokes I could make right now. Not sure which direction. This is also why your children should be in here. Um, <laughs> Dad, what's sex? That's, I'm not answering that question for you. H how about this? Quality time with friends and family. We would say, I think arguably, that quality time is one of the most important ways that we use our time. Being a friend, being a parent, being a spouse is far more important than work but we only spend 42,000 hours with the people who matter the most to us. Meaning we will spend twice as much time at work than we will with our friends, our kids, our wives, whoever it may be. Because nothing comes close to the 90,000 hours we spend working. 
right? And what does that 90,000 hours look like for you? For some of you, it's 90,000 hours of teaching. It's 90,000 hours of pouring cups of coffee. It's 90,000 hours of expense reports and memos and and meetings that should have been emails. It's 90,000 hours of avoiding that coworker, right? It's 90,000 hours of pursuing something that honestly you'll never find satisfaction in your job. And if it takes up so much, we're we're dying today, guys. (laughs) Goodness. If it takes so much of our time, the question is, do you enjoy it? Right? If it's a quarter of your life is work life draining or life giving, do you look forward to it? Are those of you in this space right now upset because I'm talking about work at church and you try to compartmentalize those things because you're trying to avoid it until Sunday night hits? Do you dread the 22% of your waking life that is work? The reason we're starting this series today is because I think that we need to come face to face with the truth that we have 90,000 hours of our life that goes to work. 90,000 hours to a company, to a boss, to a paycheck, to a commute. And because this is true, and in a lot of ways it's unavoidable, we need to change how we approach work, how we view work, how we step into this thing called a career. Because if I asked you, why do you work? What's the number one reason you work? A lot of people would say, I work to play. I work for the weekend, I work because I wanna live a certain lifestyle, Um, and I get that, but is that the wisest investment of your time? You can grind away for 40 hours or more a week just so you can enjoy a couple hours on the weekend. That that doesn't make any sense. If we're talking about money instead of hours, that would be a bad investment because you are putting in more than what you are getting out. Now, I know that some of you would say, I work to survive, And in one way or another, in varying degrees, we are all working to survive. But that can't be the only reason we work. 90,000 hours just to ensure that we stay fed and breathing on this planet. And then other of us in this room, if we were being honest, we would say, I work to feel important. I'm working to make a name for myself. I want to have a legacy. I want to be remembered. Uh, There's some deep thing in my soul where I need approval and affection from other people, and and that's why I work. And my guess is as you see these answers on the screen, it makes it very clear that none of these are worth 90,000 hours of your time. There has to be a reason bigger than a paycheck or mere survival or feeling important, right? There has to be more to this. And the thing is, there is. Because when you read scripture, you realize that God says that work is way bigger and way more important than a career or a paycheck or a title or any of those things. And through scripture, we see that Jesus brings hope into this 90,000-hour chunk of our lives. And that's what we're going to dig into in this series. God and work is about how we can take the one-fourth of our waking life called work, and we can make it worth our time. We can get a better return on that investment. And today, all I want to do is drive into the truth that according to God, work matters, right? Your work matters, Teachers, doctors, engineers, bartenders, social workers, salesmen, construction workers, no matter what you do, your work matters. And let me just say this, to those of you who are students, your job right now is going to school, showing up, learning, getting good grades, becoming the man or woman that God has called you to be. That's work and it it matters. If you're a stay-at-home parent, your work is raising your children. And specifically, I would argue, it's raising them to love and obey and trust God and your work matters. If you are retired, right, you've done your 90,000 hours. Your work is to use your wisdom to care and guide for those of us who are trying to figure this thing out. That is your work, and your work matters. And so no matter what you do, it matters. 
In fact, it's one of the things that God created us as people to do. We see this in the first couple chapters of the Bible. The book of Genesis is a story of the origin of everything. The first sentence of the Bible is this. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And as you continue reading, you'll learn that God creates everything, the sun, the moon, and the stars, water, dry land, plants, and animals. And so basically, we read at the very beginning, the first thing that God did was God got to work. It's the very first thing that God does. He works. He gets his hands dirty. He creates something out of nothing. And then on the sixth day, he creates his greatest and finest work. He creates humanity. He creates us. He creates people. In Genesis 1, it says, so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female. He created them. And so humanity is made in the image of God, which means that we are supposed to reflect the character and nature of God to everyone and everything in this world. And don't miss this. We are only 27 verses into the Bible when we read this. When God creates us in his image, and the only thing he has done so far is work, is create, is make something out of nothing, which means, among, among other things, we were created in the image of a working God, and we are called to reflect that. Now, for a minute, Uh, I want you to take your job and set it aside. I want to talk about the fact that God works and and he is at work because the question is, what does that mean for us? What does that mean in terms of our relationship with God? And and, and I would say this is really great news because this means whatever picture we have of God, right? this God who sits on a throne in a distant place, who only responds when we beg him, who doesn't really ever show up, who sits there and gets fed graves by a cluster of fat flying baby angels, that view of God is not the right view of God. Right, that falls short of who God is. Because starting on day one and working until this moment right now, the Bible teaches us that God is at work. He is not distant. He is not uninvolved. Instead, he gets his hands dirty. He is with us in our mess. Really, he is working to create something out of the nothing parts of our lives. And not only is God always at work, he loves what he gets to do. He delights in it. If you read through Genesis 1 and 2 in your Bible, you wouldn't find a God who's grumbling and moaning about having to do all this work. God wasn't a God who stared at his watch thinking, it's only 2 o'clock, I've got three more hours of making birds, this sucks. He loved it. Look at birds, okay? He loved it. He didn't do this begrudgingly because that's not who God is. Not only is God at work, but he loves the work that he gets to do. Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Here's what this means. This means that when we screw up, God isn't face-palming and muttering, OMG, right? oh my me, I created this idiot. Right? That's not what he's doing. When, when I mess up, Right? When I make mistakes, God doesn't look at me and say, I'm tired of fixing all of the things that Michael destroys, because God isn't like that. Right? This verse reminds us that in his love, he doesn't rebuke us, because in his love, what does God do? He gets to work, and God delights in his ability to save me from myself. God is at work in our lives, and he loves his job. And let me just say this. This is a bit of a side, but for some of you, God has been trying to work in your life for years, and you haven't let him. God has been trying to do good things in your marriage and in your soul and your addiction. You're putting up walls and you're blocking him or you're getting that good work and you're refusing to acknowledge it. 
And if that is you, I just want to challenge you to let God get to work. Right? Let him do what he wants to do in your life. Because this verse reminds us, God is with us. He takes delight in us. He loves us. He wants to save us. And so if you are one of those people who have been putting up those walls, the challenge for you today, more than anything else, is not to think about work, but about what God wants to do in your life. And if you want to have a conversation with us about what would that look like, we always encourage you to check the baptism box in your connection card. That way we'll call you this week and we'll talk, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to let him get to work? God loves to work in our lives. He takes delight in it. And we were created in the image of this working God who loves what he gets to do. Right? And we read this in Genesis 1. God creates man and woman, and then what does he do next? He actually blesses them with the gift of work, which means as crazy as it sounds, one of the very first gifts from God is a job. And if you aren't taking notes yet, you should write this down. Work is a gift. Work is a gift. One of the very first things that God gives us is the ability to join him in the kind of work that he does. Genesis 1, 28 says, Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth in government. And so God says, Go make people as I make people. And then he continues by saying, This earth is your resource. And what I want you to do is I want you to take care of it. I want you to manage it. I want you to use it the way that I would. God continues, he says, reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. And what he's telling Adam and Eve, he's saying, join me in working and caring for and managing everything in this place and everything that I've made. Right, so think about this with me. In Genesis 1, we learn that God creates everything in the world, but we also learn that God created an unfinished world. It wasn't actually complete. And instead of finishing it himself, he gives us the gift of joining him and moving this whole thing forward, this creation project forward. In other words, God invites us to join him in making something great out of this place. He, he tells them, go create families and societies and civilizations. Go become leaders and followers and students and teachers. Go become everything from accountants to artists. Go become city managers and architects and plumbers. Use this place as a resource. He says, use it to feed yourself. Use it to build roads. Use it to invent everything from the wheel to the printing press to the next great app. God says, join me in making something great out of this place. And that's pretty cool. I think that's a wonderful thing. And so this means you are not just a nurse. You are making something great out of this place. You're not just a CPA. You are making something great out of this place. You're not just a mom. You are making something great out of this place. In Genesis 1 and 2, we learn that work is a gift and we should love it just like God loves the work that he does. Now, there's tension with that, though, because while it is a gift, at the same time, the reality of work is very far removed from what God originally intended it to be. Like, it's cool for a few minutes in church to think I'm the server, I'm the government contractor, I'm the handyman, but in God's eyes, I'm doing an honorable work of moving the creation project forward. That, that's really cool to think about it, but the reality of work is that it's hard. And work is hard for a bunch of reasons. Work doesn't come naturally. You have to work at work. You have to work and get better at work. You have to earn a degree or you have to go to a trade school. You have to write a resume. You have to job hunt. You have to have experience before getting the job that gives you the experience that you need to get the job. Right? You have to interview and interview and interview and train and get recertified and certified again. You have to keep going through this process. Work doesn't come naturally. Another reason why work is hard is that work can feel pointless. 
How many of you have ever stepped outside of your job and thought, what I do for a job doesn't really matter? I spend my hours at work wishing I could be at home, and I spend every hour at home dreading the fact that I have to go back to work. And every day you think I could be fired or transferred or promoted or demoted or put out to pasture, and none of it would impact the world. There are times that work feels pointless. Here's another thing. Work can be all-consuming. Right? It, can, it can honestly just be selfish. That's anybody who does their job so that they can think, I don't know how to put this, but I'm kind of a big deal. Look at my title, right? And it becomes everything. Work becomes the ultimate thing in our lives, more important than family and friends and stable relationships, more than our physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual health, because I'm making a name for myself. I have money. Look at how much money I have. I'm climbing this ladder faster than you, and I'm going to keep doing it. And so I'll sacrifice myself on this altar. I'll make my job my God. Work can be all-consuming. And for all of us in the room, work can become our identity. Think about it. What's the second question we ask people? The first question is, what's your name? And the second is, what do you do for a living? You were born a woman, but you will die a doctor. You will die a teacher. You will die a banker. I was born a man. I'll die a pastor. Because work becomes our identity. This is why our success or failure at work feels like success or failure of self. This is why the cutbacks and layoffs during COVID crushed people, not just financially. It's because we all had to sit in that place of wondering, are we worth anything? Are we valuable? Or what you're doing, does it really matter? This is why we feel embarrassed, which we shouldn't, but this is why we feel embarrassed when we're in between jobs, trying to find something new. We don't really talk about those things. This is why when we finally reach the dream of retirement, we feel bored and useless and unimportant because somewhere along the way, our jobs became our entire lives. And so what happened What happened to this blessing, to this good gift that God gave us? What happened to this beautiful thing called work? When did things go terribly wrong? Because I know that I don't feel the way that God describes it in Genesis 1. Well, the answer to that is also found in the book of Genesis. You see, the very first people, Adam and Eve, made a decision. And we make the same type of decision every single day, so we can't really blame them. They decided to be their own gods. They wanted to decide for themselves what was right and wrong. They wanted to decide for themselves what they could and could not do. Uh, Christian people call this moment the fall or the fall of man, and it's when sin entered the world. Right? Sin is this idea of it's this inability to hit the bullseye. It's this inability to live completely within God's grand vision for how we live, and this includes work. In fact, in Genesis 3, work takes a really big hit. As sin enters the world, the two gifts God blessed humans with are placed under a curse. The first gift that he gave us was childbirth. And so God says, you're still gonna join me in making people. You're still gonna join me in making something great out of this place, but from here on out, it's gonna hurt. He says, it's gonna be filled with complications. It's gonna be kind of thing where it's the only thing you want in the world, but some of you can't have it. It's gonna hurt now because it's under a curse. And then this is what God says about work. God looks at Adam in Genesis 3.17 and says, the ground is cursed now because of you. All of your life, you will struggle to scratch a living from it. So because of Adam and Eve choosing their own way over God's, because of sin, God says, now work is gonna be hard. God says that the ground will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grain, meaning as you do your work, there's just gonna be obstacles. There's gonna be things that you run into over and over again, work's gonna be harder than what it needs to be. Then God continues, he says, by the sweat of your brow will you have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from the dust, and to dust you will return. And what he's telling them is from now on until the day we die, we have to earn our living. 
We have to earn the ability to live. We have to eat to live. We have to work to eat. It's going to be this constant cycle of stress and exhaustion because work is now under a curse. And this is really important. Work is not a curse. A lot of people misunderstand this and think that the curse and the punishment from God is work, but work is a gift. Work is a blessing. Uh, Work itself is not a curse any more than having babies is a curse. Some of you with toddlers aren't quite sure right now. It does get better, I promise. But work isn't a curse. Work is under a curse. The good gift of work is now riddled with pain and frustration and disappointment. It will press on our self-worth and our health and those wounds in our soul, and it will never be as fulfilling as God created it to be. And so according to God, work matters. And it matters because his grand vision for work is that we actually get to join him in making something great of this place. But at the same time, we have to be aware of the reality that work is under a curse, which means this, it should not surprise us that work is difficult. It should not surprise us that work tries to own and completely define our worth. And this one's gonna sing a little bit, but it should not surprise us to hear that there is literally no perfect job out there. Some of you, your life has been pursuit of that perfect job. It just doesn't exist. From time to time, People will say to me, uh, your job must be so fulfilling. And people say, I wish my job made me feel the way that I'm sure that your job makes you feel. This must be the perfect job. It is not, uh, trust me. Um, now, don't get me wrong, though. Like, I, I, I love my job. I, I love this church. I love you all. I, I love doing this. But this job is not perfect. It's exhausting physically and emotionally, but especially spiritually, There is basically a guarantee that when big things are happening at Collective, someone in my house will get sick, we'll have family issues, car issues, daycare issues, typically all at the same time. I know if good things are happening in this church, what happens to me is I take a nosedive emotionally, mentally, and spiritually because my shadow, that deep place in my heart, it just starts to melee on me. It just beat me down and I feel insecure. I feel like an imposter. I focus on the things I don't need to be focusing on. My job has a constant, never-ending weekly deadline. That's high pressure. On top of that, my job has zero completed projects because there's always more things to do. Because when you are a church for lost and broken people, the work is never done because we will never be perfect, including myself. And I can't tell you, honestly, how many times I've gone home and I've told my wife that I don't know if I want to do this anymore. Or really, I don't know how long I can do this. And I don't tell you this to be a martyr. I don't want your pity. Uh, I hate pity. Don't come up to me and tell me, you're doing a great job. I don't care, okay? (laughs) The reason why I share this with you is because as we go through this series, I need you guys to understand that I get it. I do. I don't have to share experience working at a hotel to explain. I understand how hard work is. I experienced that in this job as well. And so when it comes to the work, the struggle is real, and I am not exempt from that. So what do we do about this 90,000 hours of our lives that we spend working? What do we do about this struggle with the truth that work matters, but it's also under a curse? We all quit our jobs. Don't do that, okay? If your boss gets an email being like, my pastor told me to quit my job, I'm denying every bit of that. The, The reality is over the next few weeks, some of you probably do need to quit your job. And you're gonna learn why over the next few weeks, but that's not really an option for us, is it? And so what we need to do is we need to lean in. Because the truth is, I think we can figure out how to weather the curse of work while still aiming at what God's desire for work is. And that's what the next three weeks of this series are gonna be about. Because there isn't a single person in this room, including myself, who loves everything about the work that they do. Work is always gonna be difficult. Work is always gonna create tension, but we just learned that work matters 
to God. And it needs to matter to us beyond the paycheck. And so here's what we're gonna talk about throughout this series. We're gonna talk about how uh, our calling and what it is and how faith impacts our work. We're gonna talk about who we are without work and making sure our identity isn't wrapped up in a title or a paycheck or a company. We're gonna talk about how we can change the world through work. Because I believe if we dig in, God will give us a solid foundation for work and how we can invest these 90,000 hours into something better and how we can get a good return. So here's the main application for today. My challenge for you is to be here every week of this series. That's it. That's all the challenges for today. Be here every single week. And here's why this is the only challenge and really only application I'm giving for today. It's simple math. If you come back every Sunday in this series, you are investing three hours of your time Three, see if God can influence the 90,000 hours. And so the way I see it is you kind of have two options. The first is good luck, go try to figure it out on your own, which we all know because the way we feel, it doesn't really work that way. The truth is if you try to figure it out on your own, you're probably miserable in your job and you will probably continue to be miserable for the rest of your life. That's the first option. The second option is to spend three hours with us this this month to see what God can do with the 90,000 hours that we call work. And I believe that is a very good investment of your time because God doesn't just care about where you go when you die. God doesn't just care about you drinking less or lying less or filling in the blank less. He cares about your entire life. And so of course he cares about the one-fourth of your life that you call work, this thing he blessed and then gave to us as a gift. And so my challenge for you is if you feel any way about work right now, which I'm trying to stir that stuff up, is that you come back next week and the next and the next. And let's see if God can breathe life and purpose into the 90,000 hours that we call work. Let's pray. God, um, I know that a lot of us come to church on Sunday and we don't wanna talk about work. And we don't wanna think about work. We don't wanna think about the emails that we have to send or that meeting on Monday morning. We don't wanna think about that hard conversation that we have to have with our employee or that conversation we're gonna receive from our boss. So God, I know there's a lot of tension in this room right now as we've kind of broken down that wall that we try to compartmentalize on Sunday morning so we don't have to think about those things. But the thing that we understand is as we compartmentalize work and faith and life and friends and time and all these things, it's just not working out. It's not better for us. And so God, as we dig into this 90,000 hours, and God, for some of us, we're already halfway through or we're a quarter of the way through or some of us are toward the end of that line. God, I I just pray that over the next few weeks we can learn from you and from Scripture how we can bring value to what we do beyond a paycheck, how we can find purpose, how we can find joy in our career, and ultimately, God, how we can take those 90,000 hours and do something really, really good with it. Because the truth is, what culture wants us to do and society wants us to do, it's just not cutting it. But God, we know it's a gift. God, you blessed us with this thing. Our sin gets in the way. And so if we can focus on you, and trust what you say about work, maybe we can experience something better. God, we're thankful that you want to uh, reframe the way we view work, God, that you want to do work and, and make it good the same way you try to do that in our own lives. Um, God, it's such a part of everything that you do, and we're so thankful for that. God, we love you and pray these things in your name. Amen.